Hello everyone, and welcome to the Slightly Scientific Podcast, the only podcast that I can find on the internet that is run entirely by 14 to 15 year olds from Ibstock Place School. I'm Oliver, and sitting next to me is Finley. Today we have for you the second and final part of our megasode on degenerative diseases. Today's episode is on motor neuron disease, and we are very pleased to have had the opportunity to interview Dr. Jameen Sridharan, a neurologist at King's College London, who will be giving an insight into what motor neuron disease is, how it works, its relationship with dementia, and what we can do to reduce getting MND on a worldwide scale. Hi Oliver, how's it going? It's going well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. So very busy organising uh, podcasts and stuff like this. What's going on? Are you making millions? No, not making millions just yet. Um, but yeah, a lot of organising podcasts and um, less homework doing over the half term. Yeah. But um, no, it's been going um, <laughs> really well. So let's get straight to the interview. Over to you, Anna. Firstly, um, we'd love to hear more about the causes of motor neuron disease. Although we found a lot of causes um, for increasing the risk of motor neuron disease, what would you say actually causes the lower motor neurons to break down? Hi, Anna. Um, yeah, thanks for that question. It's a multifactorial. Motor neurons are some of the biggest cells in the body. They're probably one of the most energy demanding cells in the body. So that makes them a very sensitive cell. So I think pretty much everything that people have found to, to link to motor neuron disease is probably going on. The key question is what's happening first? That's my kind of key question, because I think if you can stop it before it even starts, then you've got a chance of curing the disease. So in some instances, there are gene mutations like SOD1, C9072, TDP43, which is the one that I work on. Uh, But we don't know how those mutations cause disease. But because of all the research that has shown all these different cellular processes are relevant to disease, what they've decided to do now in many cases is to actually shut the gene off. So that way you don't actually have to worry about the consequences, you're stopping the cause at source. So gene silencing therapies like SOD1 antisense or C9072 antisense are currently in the pipeline. And we're administering some of these treatments to, pa- to patients now as part of a clinical trial. But you know, it's things like axon degeneration, um, protein turnover, autophagy as we call it, the garbage disposal mechanism of neurons. I mean, every cell has a garbage disposal mechanism, but the problem with neurons is that they don't divide. So you can't divide and conquer the building up of proteins like a liver cell or a, or a skin cell might be able to. The neuron has to kind of have this ability to degenerate, cause um, to get rid of proteins that build up over the course of its entire lifetime. Because once you've got a cell in the brain, that's it. There's a small number of cells in the brain, in the hippocampus and some parts of the deep uh, around the ventricles that do regenerate and in the nose as well. But otherwise, the rest of the brain, those are the cells that you're going to have for the rest of your life. Yeah, that was really interesting. On to our next question. I think, Finley, would you like to take this one? We found that aggregates of the protein TDP43 accumulating in the central nervous system is a cause of many neurodegenerative diseases, for example, motor neuron disease. However, TDP43 also has a positive function as a binder of RNA and DNA. Why does it build up in the nervous system to cause a negative effect? Hi, Finley, that's uh, that's an important question now. uh, The thing is, when you are trying to study a disease of the brain, you're left with two major sources of data. One is uh, the the dead patient, basically post-mortem tissue. 
you have these aggregate that's what you see you have no idea how it got there right but that's the smoking gun and everybody focuses on aggregates and they try and make a model that has aggregates because they think that's what causes the disease well we have no proof of that what we know is that that's what happens that's what you see in a dead patient but how do they get there the other piece of information that you have is, is usually genetics that's another hardcore piece of data you know, having read the genetic code of an individual with a family history of motor neuron disease, and in some cases with no family history, that they have a gene mutation. Sometimes uh, that's in TDP43. Almost always the protein aggregate is TDP43. So those two pillars of neurodegenerative research are what we kind of rely on. What goes in between, nobody knows. When you're born, I mean, from the point of conception, you have that mutation if you have a family history, if you happen to have a gene mutation. But why is it that you're completely well until you're 50, 60, 70 years old? That's really strange, right? Somehow you're able to, you know, go to school, get an education, um, play sports. Most of our patients are highly educated, physically active individuals who have always been very healthy. In fact, there's evidence suggesting that obesity is a, is a protective factor. And there's one piece of work that shows that if you exercise too much, if you have a specific gene mutation, it increases your risk of MND. I'm not trying to discourage people from exercising and from and encourage them to eat too much. I'm not, um, but it's interesting. So in between, what happens? And the people have often tried to replicate a, a model or what they think is the disease process by creating aggregations in situ. And I think there's some value to that, but I'm again interested in what happens before that occurs. And in the models that we've created, we don't see aggregates, and yet we do see evidence of neurodegeneration. So that tells me you don't need aggregates to cause neurodegeneration. I think what's happening is aggregates are a bit like wrinkles. They're a sign of age, but they're not a sign necessarily of disease, right? So to cause a nerve cell to die, you need something else, I think. And some people think these are what we call oligomers. So these are kind of almost invisible aggregates. There's, there's the, the prelude to an aggregate. I think an aggregate is probably where protein is accumulating. It's in the cytoplasm, mostly sometimes in the nucleus. And it's perhaps the way the cell is trying to cope with too much protein that it can't get rid of. So it's just storing it. To what extent it causes disease is unclear. But oligomers, these kind of little bits of protein that perhaps are eventually going to build up into an aggregate, they are probably a bit more mobile, a bit more toxic. They have the potential to do more damage within the cell. Um, why do the aggregates form? Partly, I think, because of age, uh, partly because the garbage disposal system fails over the course of time. Like I said, these neurons, they have to have this system within themselves forever. And, and over the course of time, I think it becomes more difficult to, to deal with these proteins. There's also a process of nucleocytoplasmic transport. So two of the major compartments, if you like, within a cell are the nucleus, which is where the DNA is, and the cytoplasm, which is outside. And you get a lot of information flowing between the two. TDP43 is mostly in the nucleus where it binds to DNA and where it binds to RNA, where it causes splicing changes to occur. all those, the good pr uh, properties of TDP43, as you mentioned, but it does sometimes go into the cytoplasm and it has roles in the cytoplasm. So it has to be able to move in and out and it has signals that allow it to do that. And it cooperates with other transport proteins that act like taxis, if you like, they kind of move it in and out. So there's evidence that those that taxi system fails and that the route between the nucleus and the cytoplasm gets blocked up these pores so it's um 
some of those uh, proteins, there are mutations in those uh, in the genes that make those proteins. Um, those proteins in the nuclear pore are also some of the oldest proteins in your body. So again, you, you've got a neuron that doesn't divide and you've got a really old protein that doesn't really get turned over. That's just a recipe for disaster. Okay, I just have one question about what you were saying. Um, so would you say aggregates of TDP43 might not actually be a cause, but more of an effect and like the cause might be more um, a blockage um, in the route between the um, nucleus and the cytoplasm? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, um, uh, what happens is that you, so, uh, there's a lot of um, people now who think, and I, so, there's some truth in this, I think, is that it's not just the mislocalization to the cytoplasm, it's also the fact that it's not in the nucleus anymore, uh, right? So there's the absence of the protein doing what it ought to be doing in the nucleus. But it's really difficult to know because the protein has a natural ability to move in and out, so, which means it does have a function of some sort in the cytoplasm. And in some scenarios, it actually, it, it's probably a good thing that it's in the cytoplasm. If, for example, you injure an axon, which is the long wire that comes out from the cell, you have the protein moving out from the nucleus into the cytoplasm temporarily. And then it goes back into the nucleus. There's a couple of studies that have shown that, which suggests that it has a role in injury and that the role is in the cytoplasm rather than the nucleus. So maybe what happens is that that happens too much over the course of time and then accumulates in the cytoplasm. Maybe it gets out of the cytoplasm to do what it ought to be doing, but because of the failure of the pore, it can't get back in. Um, so what's the cause there? Uh, I suppose it's a, it's, a, it's a combination of different things. It's a, it's a combination of the fact that it's in the cytoplasm, a combination of the fact that it's not in the nucleus, and that's exacerbated by the, the failure of the transport mechanisms or the pore complexes. I think all of these different things can contribute in different ways. And that's why I think there are so many different mutations in different genes that are linked with the disease. So you have mutations in TDP43, variations in the nuclear pore complex, changes in, in autophagy. So P62 is a protein that conjugates to TDP43 and tells the system that it needs to be degraded. There are mutations in that protein as well, P62. So there's all these different um, genes that we find Tell us something about what's going on. In terms of effects of the disease, we have the obvious symptoms such as difficulty walking, talking and swallowing, muscle twitching, etc. Um, we were wondering what effects which symptoms you suffer from. Is there any way to predict which symptoms you'll get? Um, it's difficult. The disease is heterogeneous, which is what you pretty much described. Some patients will have onset up in the face area, some patients with swallowing problems, speech problems. Other patients will have it up the other end, so they'll have problems with walking. They, may, they might be tripping over. In general, one thing we can say is that patients tend to have a spread of the disease process. So if it starts in the face, it might then move down into the arms and into the legs. If it starts in the legs, then it'll move up. If it starts in the left side, um, in the left leg, for example, it might go up to the left arm, or it might go over to the right leg. We don't usually see it in the left leg and the right arm. So we have this feeling that it's kind of spreading like fire. Some people think it starts in the spinal cord and it spreads in the spinal cord. That would explain why you have a lot of the lower motor neuron symptoms, but it doesn't necessarily explain 
the upper motor neuron symptoms that we have. I think if, if when a patient comes in and they've got a problem with their left foot, and I can see on examination that they, their right leg doesn't look normal, although they are telling me it's normal, I know that it's gonna be their right leg that goes next. So to some extent you can tell what's gonna happen next and you're waiting for that to happen. I've seen patients who've had what we call flail arm syndrome, which is where everything's normal apart from their arms. And you can tell that they're gonna be left with no power in their arms. They're just lying wasted by their sides but the legs are gonna remain strong. That's a type of MND that's much more common in men than in women, about nine times more common in men than in women. Has a much better prognosis. Patients tend to live for a very long, very long time with that. And I suppose in the, in the very early stages, you can tell that's going to be the pattern. What causes it to spread in such a way from, like you said, like fire, like going from limb to limb like that? Yeah, I mean, there's, the only real hypothesis that people have latched onto is again coming back to protein aggregation because there's this sense that these proteins linked with MND and with other diseases of the brain uh, have a prion-like property. So mad cow disease uh, is the archetypal prion disease. It's caused by a mutation in, in, in a protein. Uh, well, it's caused by uh, altered conformation or shape of the prion protein. Sometimes that's caused by a mutation. Sometimes it's caused by eating infected beef, right? This is something from before your time, really. Um, the proteins linked with motor neuron disease are similar in some ways to, to the prion protein. And they have this, what we call prion-like domain. Um, it's actually yeast prions rather than human prions that they're, they're more similar to, but we, we don't need to go into that detail right now. But in essence, they have a, a similar kind of property and that they're able to fold into a certain shape and then they seem to be able to if they bind to another normal shaped protein change the shape of that protein as well they have the ability to kind of spread this pathological process and some people think it spreads from one nerve cell to an adjacent nerve cell so it hops across cells so people are really trying very hard to try and prove this in in model systems it's very difficult to prove it in a human system because you're, again you're dealing with the patients at the end stage of disease. You don't know how it got there. You don't know the whole story. So that's the only real hypothesis. I, I think it could be something else. I think it could be because you've got a breakdown in synapses. You've got adjacent uh, systems in the brain so, or in the spinal cord. So you've got a, you know, the, the, the nerves in the spinal cord that supply the, the left leg, which are relatively near to the nerves that supply uh, the right leg. Similarly, the areas in the brain, you know, our, our nervous system, if you like, is maps. You can, you can almost draw the picture of a human, the homunculus on the cortex of the brain. So, you know, this is up here, is going to be the leg area here and the hand area and then the face area here. So it all very beautifully can be mapped on the brain. So I think if you've got an area that's affected here, you've got connections to adjacent neurons that become compromised because you've got nerve cells that are suffering. And that compromise perhaps results in the adjacent parts of the body being affected. And that's manifest as a spreading pattern of uh, clinical features. That's another possibility. Um, so you talk a lot about um, the model systems. How do you um, model them? <laughs> that's the right word. Yeah, you, I mean, no models are ideal. That's, you have to accept that. If you don't, then you're going to, you, you're going to, your science is going to be bad. You have to appreciate that there are weaknesses to your models. I think. Being a clinician is useful because you have the best model, if you like, which is the patient. You have access to patients 
But the problem is, of course, we can't do the kind of experiments to work out how they get there. You can try and look at them, examine them, see how they progress over the course of time. You can take blood samples, you can take spinal fluid samples, you can do brain scans. It doesn't tell you what's going on necessarily at the molecular level. All of the tools that we have are getting better and better. There are diffusion tensor imaging approaches that allow you to look at the nerve tracts and you can actually see the, the paths of different nerve cells in the brain. You can see how they're disrupted in the brain, even before patients tell you that there's something wrong with them, which tells you how long in advance of disease onset that the disease is actually starting. Those are the areas of, you know, the stages of the disease that are really difficult to study in, in humans without, you know, doing things that you can't really do to humans, which is why we use animal models, because we are allowed to do things to animals. And it's not something we take lightly. It's not something that I like doing, but it's something that I think we have to do in order to study the brain. It's very difficult. So a mouse is actually a very useful tool. They are mammals like us. They have genes that are almost identical to us. They have TDP43. They have C9072. They have fuzz. They have SOD1. All of these genes that cause MND and the genes that cause dementias like Alzheimer's and FTD, they are all present in mice, progranulin, tau, right? These genes that are mutated in commonly in, in frontotemporal dementia. Their brains are not the same as ours, but they have very similar architecture. The cortex of the brain has six layers in the mouse, just like it has in us. The hippocampus is similarly structured as well. Flies are also very useful. People don't care so much about flies. They are much smaller. They breed much more quickly. They're much cheaper to look after. But again, they have TDP43 and they have fuzz. They have SOD1 um, and they have tau. They have genes that are very similar to us. Uh, and then of course you have cellular systems. Now the advantage of that is that you can have human cells in a dish, not a human brain, but you can make these things called organoids, which are kind of similar to brains. You can grow a stem cell from a human, which you can acquire uh, via um, experiments you do on a skin cell. So you can take a skin biopsy from you and I can make a little brain of yours in a dish if I really wanted, or if you really wanted. Oh, wow. Yeah, so there's a Yamanaka Japanese scientist, well, it's actually a clinician, orthopedic surgeon, I think he was, he is, and a scientist who wanted to basically find ways of replacing bone tissue, replacing tissues to actually regenerate humans, right, to encourage, to, to, to promote their survival. He um, identified factors that you can use, chemicals, to, to turn a skin cell into a stem cell. Once it, so you turn it back in time, right? And when we start off, we start off with a sperm and an egg, right? And then you end up with one cell, a fertilized cell, one cell, that's how we begin. They advise to give two, then four, then eight, and so on and so on, right? And those cells are actually very, um, oh, they're amazing, because eventually that one cell becomes everything from skin to brain to bone, right? Um, how is that possible? Well, in those early stages, it is possible. They have that potential. We call it pluripotency, right? You can turn a skin cell back in time to become a pluripotent cell, cell or one of your blood cells to become a pluripotent cell. And then you can turn that cell into anything you want, for example, a nerve cell. And then you can also turn it into a glial cell. You can turn it into different kinds of nerve cells, into a spinal cord nerve cell or a brain cell. Mm -hmm. And you can create little balls of these cells that self form into little brains. They have, they have different kinds of nerve cells. They have different cortical layers as well. Uh, we don't do that. I think it's still a very tricky area, an area that's still going, undergoing a lot of development. So I'll wait for other people to do a lot of the hard work before I get involved in it. At the moment, we're working with stem cell-derived neurons, and we're working with mouse models, and we do a little bit of work with flies.
Ooh. back onto effect um we were just wondering we discovered that emotional outbursts are a common symptom of the disease why exactly is this is most of the symptoms are purely physical um also are there any other psychological aspects of, um, of the disease yeah the frontal lobe is where the motor cortex is right so if you think of the frontal lobe as really being the output it's how you how you express yourself right whether that's through movements or through emotions and behavior and language, right? The back of the brain is more sensory. So this is where you see all the visual input comes out to the back of the brain. So if you damage the brain here, you lose your vision. If you damage the brain here, your behavior changes and also your motor function changes. So you can become paralyzed and your um, personality changes as well. The frontal lobe is affected in MND patients as well. Uh, why that is we don't know but I think it's partly because the, simply the motor strip that controls the motor neurons the upper motor neurons is in the same part of the frontal lobe and I think the disease spreads like that so if you have motor neuron disease and it starts with paralysis and you could develop behavioral changes if it goes more anteriorly or if it starts anteriorly you start with behavioral changes and it goes backwards and then you develop MND now the emotional outbursts occur because the normal processes that we have that stop us right now from crying and laughing are lost you lose that inhibitory control. So you can't control yourself anymore. You become disinhibited. That happens when you, when you drink too much or when you have a degenerative disease of the frontal lobe or um, if you have an, a head injury, for example. Phineas Gage is a famous example, an individual who had a brain trauma. Um, again, I think that's something that you could, you could do a whole podcast about. Mm -hmm. Did you say so a brain trauma? Yeah. So Phineas Gage is a famous case who an individual who had an iron rod pushed up through his, through his head, basically, had it removed later on, but his personality changed. He was never the same guy again after that. Um, and that was all due to frontal lobe damage. Just look him up. Look him up. I will definitely do that. Uh, looking at the relationship between MND and a condition called frontotemporal dementia, they appear to be quite similar. So firstly, if you get frontotemporal dementia, do you have a higher chance of getting motor neuron disease and does it work the other way around too? Yeah, that's a good question. The, um, the both diseases are relatively uncommon. FTD is less common than, than MND. The, but that's not to say that they're that rare. The, the reason we don't see much of them is that patients with MND die, right? The risk, lifetime risk of MND is, is the same as MS. It's about one in 300, one in 350, and the same for MS. Um, but it's just because patients with MS tend to survive with the disease for longer, it seems to be more prevalent. The, um, because uh, it's unlike, you're unlikely to get MND, right? It's one in 300 is, is the same as MS, but you're unlikely to get both MND and FTD purely by chance. If you've got a family history of MND due to a genetic mutation, that's your biggest risk factor for really getting MND. If you have no family history, you're unlikely to, to I mean, when we see patients who come in, we have a patient who comes, comes in, for example, with MND. There's no other family member uh, with MND. We often have their relatives asking, well, what about me? What are the chances of me having MND? And the risk isn't that much higher than somebody who doesn't have any, any MND in the family. If you've got two people in the family who've got MND, then it becomes a different matter. The chances are higher for an additional member getting MND. And the same, same thing applies to FTD. FTD 
um, family histories are, tend to be more interesting, I think, because there's many more patients with FTD who have a family history. Something about something like about 40% of patients with FTD will have a family history. It's only about 10% for MND. Um, patients with MND, about 5% of them will have FTD as well. But about half of them will have subtle features of cognitive changes that are suggestive of FTD. They may have emotional ability. They may have personality changes, but they don't fulfill what we call kind of criteria diagnostic criteria for FTD. But that shows you that there is something going on. I don't think we have the tools right now to, to really indicate just how profound the, the kind of frontal temporal changes are in patients with MND, but I think they're there. I think that, as I mentioned, with these new MRI changes, new MRI techniques like DTI, we may be able to, to tell just how much more common FTD is. T to me, MND and FTD are the same disease. They're just different flavors of the same thing, much like PMA, progressive muscular atrophy, a lower motor neuron variant of MND is on the same spectrum as PLS, primary lateral sclerosis, which is a pure upper motor neuron variant of MND. We've had a family who had a mutation in a gene, which it started with the mother developing frontotemporal dementia and bulbar MND. But she had a son who, and she, she died, but she has a son who has primary lateral sclerosis, who's still alive. And another son who had ALS who died. So three people within a family with the with the same mutation, but with yeah. three different clinical manifestations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the diseases are obviously really similar if you can have some relatives with just some different variations. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if somebody came in with with FTD um, and they had somebody else in the family who had MND. When somebody comes into the clinic, I ask them about dementia. I don't just ask them, oh, is there anybody else in the family who had MND? I ask them, is anybody else who had dementia? There are some variants like SOD1. SOD1 is a gene that is seen um, that, to cause only MND, but not FTD. And there are some genes like C9, which cause both or a mixture of both. Mm -hmm. Motor neuron disease, although there is currently no cure, do you think there will be, it will find a cure for, it, cure for it or similar diseases? Yeah, I mean, well, the gene therapies I mentioned are really exciting. The, fact that you know, 10% of patients will have a family history, 20% of those will have a mutation in SOD1, 40% in C9072, about 4% uh, in TDP and about 4% in FUS, and the rest are covered by a whole bunch of other genes as well. All of those genes, although they are, account for only 10% together of all MND or ALS, and there's the potential to target those mutations with gene therapies, and that's what is going on right now. So there's been, you know, treatments for amyloid, treatments for porphyria, you may have seen that in the news today. And then there's also treatments for some of these MND forms as well, but they're not yet licensed. They're still undergoing clinical trials. And some of the trials are happening at King's, which is where I work, and they've shown some promise. There's a, another disease called SMA, spinal muscular atrophy, which is another motor neuron disease but it's the commonest motor neuron disease in children. It can affect adults as well. But in children, it's the commonest genetic killer of, of babies and infants. And there's actually a treatment for it, and it is a gene therapy. So what it does is it replaces the missing gene. Um, well, what it does is it actually causes a splicing change in a, in a backup gene. So normally, SMA is caused by the loss of a gene. Okay, But there's another gene that we all have like to cons to some extent to compensate for the loss of that gene, but it doesn't usually do very much. 
you can trick that gene so that it actually compensates much more by giving this gene therapy. It causes a splicing change, so it changes the, the, the kind of the backup gene. So it must, it's much more powerful. And that is really effective. And that's changed the way uh, pediatric neurologists are practicing, so much so that these patients are no longer dying. They're actually turning into adults, um, which means that they need to have continued treatment for a very long time. So that's changing the way the NHS is going to work. We need more people to actually administer these treatments. Um, but that, I think the same thing will happen to some extent for MND. That still only accounts for a small fraction of the MND patients, those with a family history. We still need to find ways of treating the other 90% who don't have a family history, don't have an obvious gene mutation. And that's the so-called sporadic ALS cases. And that's what we're working on right now. Also, um, we came across quite an interesting theme concerning motor neuron disease in our research. Um, we found that the estimated risk of developing motor neuron disease um, is one in 350 for men, but only one in 500 for women, and that 60% of patients are male. Could you please explain why men are more likely to, than women to get it? Yeah, we don't know. It's an interesting point. Um, the, we obviously suggest that hormones have something to do with this. We know that, for example, the, um, there's another motor neuron disease, a kind of motor neuron disease called um, spinal bulbar muscular atrophy, or Kennedy's disease, which affects men. And it's caused by a mutation in the androgen receptor. So that suggests that uh, androgens themselves have a role to play in motor neuron degeneration. Some people think that estrogens have a role in the way that um, cells are able to um, transport proteins. Um, synapses in the brain respond to estrogens as well. So over the course of the estrous cycle, the menstrual cycle in women, the synapses change. Um, so. There's a lot to, to be said for that um, as a potential kind of contributor to the, the greater risk of MND in men than in women. Some people say maybe it's because of exercise, physical activity. Maybe men are just physically more active and that they put themselves at greater risks. That they, maybe, they, maybe they take greater risks with, with chemicals and substance abuse and stuff like that. But I don't see that in our patients. There's no associations been found between substance abuse and, and MND. There's been some links between Gulf War syndrome and MND in America. Gulf War syndrome, the original Gulf War in the 90s, was um, a, you know a war in which chemicals were used, um, chemical weapons were used, and patients, uh, soldiers were exposed to uh, to toxins that nobody really fully understands the kind of potential consequences of. But organophosphates was certainly um, one kind of chemical that they were exposed to, and there seems to be a higher association with patients, uh, with soldiers who are out there and, and MND. So maybe that's another risk factor, kind of exposure to environmental factors. But I think um, at the moment, we don't really know. Um, lastly, although only two in 10,000 people in the UK are affected by motor neuron disease each year, this is still quite common. Is there anything we can do to reduce the chances of getting motor neuron disease on a worldwide scale? Yeah, so two per 100,000, right, in the population. So there's about 70 million people in this country. We see at King's about 200 new patients every year. And we're one of the biggest centres in, in the UK. And then you've got Oxford and Sheffield. Sheffield's a very big centre as well. And then Cambridge, all of these different centres around the UK will also have their own fair share of MND patients. In terms of reducing risk, um, I, I don't really have anything to say because nobody really knows. I mean, we talked about, you can't change your sex. You can't become a woman. You can't, um, I wouldn't encourage you to stop exercising. 
which mm -hmm. some people suggest if you've got a C9 or 72 mutation, you shouldn't exercise so much. That's what one paper, um, you know, you, you could conclude, but I think that's the, the evidence is still not 100%. It's suggestive, but I, I, it, I think it's terrible if you're scaring people away from, from exercising. Yeah. You could argue that you shouldn't do ultra marathons. There is some suggestion that, for example, if you have a C9 or 72 mutation, you shouldn't do ultra marathons and that kind of exercise. So I think it's okay to go cycling and swimming and all the rest of it, but maybe you should be think twice about doing excessive exercise. So the hypothesis there, I guess, is that your motor neurons are already at risk because they have a, a faulty gene. And if you stress them out too much, you could push them over the edge. Um, but I think, and I, it, 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 there's no easy answer to your question. I, I, I think um, there is no way to, to uh, genuinely avoid MND other, other than if you have a family history, finding out whether you've got a gene mutation and then thinking about how you might want to modify your behavior or potentially have a gene therapy in advance of getting sick. And there are some um, research groups who are working on that. In other words, basically pre-symptomatic gene therapy. The plan is to do to find relatives of patients who have had who have got MND with a genetic mutation, uh, screen those relatives for mutations, find those relatives who do have the mutation, and then follow them. And just before they get sick, start giving them treatment. How do you work out that they're going to get sick before they get sick? You can take spinal fluid samples, take the spinal fluid samples serially over the course of time and wait for evidence of nerve damage. So some chemicals are released into the spinal fluid like neurofilaments, which are an indicator of nerve damage. Once you see that rise, maybe that's the time to hit them with the gene therapy. So this is a moving field, it's a, it's a developing area. Um, and I think with the increasing power that we have to, to manipulate the genome, I think maybe those who do have a family history are the ones that we're going to be able to kind of help first off in terms of trying to prevent the disease. Such an interesting topic. Yeah. There's so much we still need to do on this. It, yeah, it's incredibly interesting what Honest said. So thank you very much for, um, yeah, just allowing us to interview you. Sure. It's like a fantastic sure. opportunity. Okay. Um, good. Well, good luck with everything. So there you have it. Firstly, I would love to give a massive thank you to Dr. Jameen Shreeteran for giving up his time to share his incredible knowledge with us. What I found really interesting from the interview was when he said that you could semi-predict where the motor neuron disease was going to spread to next. I'd also like to thank Honor and Finley for helping me with the interview, as well as Charlotte, Raya, Matthew and Emma for helping research and come up with questions. And last, but definitely not least, to Miss Taylor for all of her greatly appreciated support with the podcast. And for the people who are still listening, here is a little clip taken from the interview, clearly demonstrating my brilliant interviewing skills. Um, is there a way of delaying the disease or slowing it down or even just relieving some of the symptoms? I feel like we covered that slightly. Yeah, well, that's that what question. we're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, the treatments that we're trying yeah. to do. They, we're not, I mean... So thank you everyone for listening and I hope you all have a lovely day.